This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Blue Book Heavy Games. The Last Cavalry Charge. SF Cinema Changes Forever. And Ted Sirius. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think that power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of keys in the Discord, the thump of reference books taken down off the shelf, the crunch, well, still of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But today, the gaming hut has got an industrious-looking little notebook or a blue book by it. It's got uh, a Discord or a Slack or some other kind of message system up because we are talking about games where the game is around the game, and that's the game. I believe, Robin, you selected our topic of blue book heavy games based on a throwaway comment I made in a instantly previous gaming hut. Is that correct? Yes, you said, let's talk about blue book heavy games later. So we're doing that now. Right. I did my homework, and now we're ready to all prepared for the for the whole go and the actual uh, moment here. And so a blue book heavy game just basically means anything where there is a lot of activity outside the scheduled hours of the game where presumably people either siloed or collaboratively are working away at something that then feeds into play. And I think this is something that is falling away a little bit. It was never really the the most mainstreamy games never quite did this, and that is simply because of the time commitment that it assumes not just from one or two players, but from all of the players. So whenever you're doing something kind of specialized, there's an extra level of difficulty in assembling a group of people who are all ready to do that. And with a game that requires extensive time commitment outside the hours of play, I think you have to be extra careful 
about people who think they have time to do it, but don't. Right. And is there anything more to say about this initially other than make sure everybody wants to do it before we move on to what it is and how to do it? I mean, I would say that to some extent, I think you're right, that it is maybe a little less common than it has been. But on the other hand, the existence of asynchronous platforms like Slack or Discord or whatever probably are encouraging a lot of this kind of thing maybe not as formal always structures of a game, but as informal elements of a theoretically not particularly blue book heavy game that you will still have at some point someone dumping two or three pages of character backstory into the slack and sending it off to the GM or to the other players. You might have someone, you know, come back and say, Hey, I just found in the research a map of uh, Paris in 1780 this is where our game is. Boop, here it is. And then it's that ability to find things digitally and throw them up digitally, or just to spend time when you should be doing something else on your computer, doing stuff about the game that I think encourages a little bit. And of course, some forms of game, you know, uh, asynchronous simming and, and other sorts of gameplay are probably just continuing completely unperturbed by whatever it is you and I are talking about, because I think there is a, a demographic for which and I don't even know if it's a coherent demographic except people who like this kind of play for which they fall into this kind of play and never get around to the tabletop part at all with the dice that they're only doing blue book to one degree or another with emotional downloads and occasionally hooking up to do a scene together. But then it's following the whole stream of essentially series serial solo or parallel solo play that is that sort of game. And since I don't do that sort of game, I know it exists. I don't have an awful lot to say about it. I think just acknowledging that it's there is maybe all I can do. And then um, we can go back to a blue book heavy game that is also a more conventional tabletop game. Right. And so the different activities that you do out of the game time proper, I would characterize as a support activity. So there's still usually some sort of adventure genre mainline activity that people engage in, but off on the side, they're doing something else that feeds into that. And typically we're talking about something that will be a resource management element, probably where you are building a ship uh, your spaceship or you're uh, managing your, your clan or your political structure or, or uh, what have you. And then, as you said, there's also the element where people can kind of drop in more backstory about their characters. I think that's almost sort of a separate, two separate categories, right? There's the thing that is actually a game, and then there is providing more background material about the game. And in the second case, you always have to wonder, uh, people do love to write, or well, a subset of people love to write backstory for their characters, but how does that come up in play? Is it a substitute for play? Uh, are you imagining a vivid inner reality for your character? But then when you actually play, you're just in a dungeon opening doors. And so the question, I guess, is to make sure, how is this actually a collaborative activity that makes everybody want to do it and feel that they've enriched their game rather than just adding a level of sort of solo emotional connection? And so what what would you characterize, Ken, as sort of the, the classic games with uh, a lot of side play? Well, I mean, I think that you can sort of begin the circle anywhere, but I would begin with Castle Falkenstein, which literally gave you player rewards for writing up an in-character diary of what, what was happening in the game. And then that provided 
role play experience as people could read, oh, this is what, you know, Lady Agatha thought was happening. This is what uh, the elf that hangs around with us thought was happening. And you have this ability to get the sort of epistolary multiple perspective feeling of 19th century fiction. I think it's one of the nicest things in Castle Falkenstein and a game full of nice and underrated things. But the trouble, as I think we alluded to, and maybe we'll get back to this bone a little bit later, is that characters or other players differ in how much time or interest they have in writing up their character diary. And so it's maybe a little bit of a knock that the character that's always writing up their diary has always got five extra experience points or whatever. And so that can create a, a, a ripple, if you will, in the continuum. I think any GURPS game with a vehicle and it becomes this, as people, as you say, are building their vehicle, it's more a question of mechanically building it and then sending it around for all the players to agree with. There's also... And, and champions as well, any other, yes, any right. complicated point build system. Right. Amber, uh, Diceless, certainly assumes that there will be a lot of two-player interaction that then gets fed back into the the game diary that you would, if you know, you and brand meet way off in some realm and you have a big throwdown, one of you writes that up. I forget if it's the winner or the loser. And then it comes into the sort of campaign archives for everyone to read. And again, Amber way before it's time was being optimized for online play back when we all uh, just had our good old Usenet accounts, even before there was uh even particularly reliable email in some cases. So the, uh, the, that sort of, interactive personal notion that is meant to feed into a larger place. So I would assume that certainly if Amber was doing it, many, many vampire games were doing it. Any game where there's a lot of individual powerful characters that are the players and their intrigue between them in small groups becomes part of the shared excitement and adventure of the game. Right. Right. So one of the challenges then of this, of where actual plot is happening as the, support activity it's not that gaming only happens when everybody meets but there's also actual gaming going on which i think maybe goes a bit beyond blue booking but is absolutely something that people do and that you want to uh, be able to fit in and so the trick with that is to make sure that the things that happen on the side little side quests that people are on and that can be intriguing with a vampire or you the magician go off and do uh, research in the f20 town or, you know, you go down to the planet to complete your planetary survey where you notice the fungi that will come into it. That as GM, your task then is to make sure that everybody has a chance to see all of those experiences harmonize and matter. And so that then becomes a situation where the blue booking, that the side quests are things that you have to, as a GM, look at when your session begins to go, okay, I need to fit in something with the research and he's been off talking to the taper people and I guess I'll have to bring the taper people into it and come up with a plot line where the new spell that you can do is somehow relevant. So it's fun in that players are giving you the GM orders as to things that they would like to have incorporate and, and happen in the game. It might be that they're perfectly happy to just have that going on sort of in their own heads and with you, but I would think that eventually the group is going to start to feel like it's not really a group so much as sort of a meeting where everybody brings up an agenda item and then the person chairing the meeting has to deal with it. And I think after a while that becomes less fun. So you have to find ways to weave those into the actual adventures or combine stakes so that 
everybody's plot line not only gets served, but converges into a, a single plot line. And that's the extra challenge that goes with having this sort of gameplay is that I think you're right that the GM, to make it feel organic and fun for everyone, has to be able to pull all of those threads into a core story so that if you know three of the characters are engaging in a passionate romantic triangle at some point on screen with the other two players there the one at the top of the triangle has to choose between the druid and the paladin and uh it has to happen at a dramatic moment ideally where you know the new spell is being tested or whatever okay now this just needs the hair of your true love who do you who do you pull the hair from there cleric and it's like oh man how about we use the fur of my kitty it's like no no it says very clearly hair sorry we can't do that and then you know you you try and provide a story beat for everyone that pays off the the side adventures in an interesting, organic and compelling way. And that's not easy. It's, it's not easy just to do a regular story that is compelling and interesting. And certainly you have these orders. So on the one hand, that makes it, I don't want to say easier, but it makes it a different kind of fun and maybe a different challenge because you're, you're not, you know, having to create everything de novo, but you know, people don't do it on, legitimate multi-million dollar television shows every week. So it's obviously harder than it looks. Right. And it's going to push you toward a sandboxy style of play mm-hmm. uh, away from mission oriented adventures. And we've talked about the pros and cons of both of those styles uh, many times on the show. And so again, you want to make sure that multiple people feel a payoff when one of the person's sort of side quests enters it. Well, I would be tempted in this day and age to, you know, whether you're doing it at a Discord or a Slack or wherever, to use the same rule that I use when parties split up in-person play uh, or, you know, in core play, which is to have everyone be able to access what is going on so that you know, you know, not only are you allowed to, but you are expected to go and read, you know, Josie's side quest where she goes to talk to the taper people and, you know, Dev's thing where he goes and researches this new particular form of fireball and you're expected to be up on that when you show up for the core game yeah and this will allow uh, the gm to offload some of the the pressure of trying to harmonize all of these things by saying you know dev what do you think the taper people might be able to add to your uh, spell research process you're very interested to hear from josie when she gets back why is that mm-hmm. and so have them take on the load of the hard bit of this style of play, which is getting everything harmonized. Is there anything to say about challenges or or pitfalls of the more traditional sort of blue booking where you're building a castle together or, you know, managing your resources or, you know, the other examples that I gave at the top? Is that something that sort of more kind of solves itself because it's just a simple matter of we'll have the spaceship in it and make sure that the thing that they built fits into the mission-oriented adventure that you had at the top. I mean, that sort of play, which can be done in person also. I mean, I've I've sat through many a winter season of Ars Magica where things that could have been done in blue books or in e- email are happily done at the table. So 
<laughs> I, I guess the pitfall is make sure that you know you are only doing that at the table. I think that the opportunity for organic role playing moments that happen if you're, you know, b- putting the new tower up on the on the castle, and then you can go around and you can say, so what? Do you, what's the first thing you do in the new tower to every uh, one of the characters, and then that gives you a little role playing moment. Uh, you could have done that in Blue Book as well, but it's fun to do it at the table. I think that those elements. And this is sort of, I guess, reasoning backward from my own experience is that try and see which the players enjoy. If the players like doing that at the table together, then I don't see that it's a problem to make it core play. If the players enjoy doing it off screen as many and often you'll find one player who loves doing it and the other players who are glad to have the bookkeeping nightmare be gone from them, then the only pitfall is make sure that that player is taking everyone's requests or input or value on board when they're just adding up the modifiers, you know, and people don't come back and find that they've, you know, got a fighter bomber when they actually wanted a merchant ship, uh, that kind of problem. So you've got a, a sort of a, you know, anytime, and I think this is generalizable, anytime any player sort of races ahead in any aspect of the game, you have to make sure that they're racing ahead in train with, if not in concert with the other players. But I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. I do want to briefly talk about the kind of blue book where I think we mentioned what set this off is where players do a lot of out of game research or out of game study over and above co-creation of their, you know, specific magician's lab or whatever, where they're co-creating the barony or they're co-creating by research. They're figuring out, you know, who is this noble house that we want to, you know, overthrow and, when your players are all at the University of Chicago, as mine were, that actually, you know, you could say to one player, okay, give us a report on Breton fairy lore. And Daniel would go off and he would come back and there would be a handout and there'd be a report and there'd be five cool story hooks. And we would just integrate that into the campaign and move on. When I was doing Knights Black Agents, there was a bit of that as people would race me to the Google Maps and say, oh, look, it's a graveyard right next to the um, the armory or whatever. And then that becomes, you know, sort of obviously the setting of the of, of the episode, regardless of whether I had intended them to have that meeting right there. And you can see, you can imagine a, a, a version where either in a fantasy world you're co-creating and you say, you're from the Blue Mountains. What's it like in the Blue Mountains? And they go off and they write up the Blue Mountains and then it goes into the, into the game Slack or the game Google Drive or whatever. And, right. and, and that's very much a co-game mastering mm-hmm. is beginning to arise there where essentially players are writing chunks of the source book as you yeah. go along. Right. And maybe uh, that is even a, a third stream of blue booking. So we've sort of got classic blue booking where you're building stuff together, inventorying, you know, you have saga stuff going on in the background. Then you've got your side quest form and then you've got player co-creation, whether they're starting with earth or not. I think they're all kind of very separate things that have different challenges. And since we've already run out of time, this (laughs) segment was a segment that started by putting a pin in a topic. Maybe we can put a pin in the topic of player research and come back to that another time. But for uh, now, It's time for us to belatedly get out of this segment and find out what other one waits for us on the other side of this mist-shrouded hill. The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders. 
but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The blaring of bugles, the uh, rat-a-tat-tat of drums, and the camouflage everywhere and the fact that it's really a tent tell us that we're once more in the command hut. This time we're in the command hut at the command of beloved Patron backer Andrew Miller, who would like to know about the last cavalry charge, which many are saying, Ken, yeah. the last cavalry charge or major cavalry charge and what constitutes a major cavalry charge may become an issue in, in later on down in the segment happened on August 24th, 1942, and uh, this was an engagement between the Italian 3rd Cavalry Regiment, Savoia, and the Soviet 812th Rifle Regiment, and uh, of course this was World War II. This is the Italian fighting for the Axis, the Soviets fighting for themselves, and, <laughs> you know, the Allies. And this happens <laughs> on a sure. hill near Izbushensky. And I guess we need to, as I'm introducing things, need to introduce the fact that since we're talking about a cavalry charge after which people didn't do cavalry charges anymore, we're going to have to talk about harm coming to animals. So if that is a problem for you, you might want to uh, scrub past this segment. Yeah. The downside of horse cavalry is that the poor horses have to get involved in the fight between Mussolini and Stalin. And frankly, we can all think of better things for horses to be doing with their yes, time. We're rooting for the horses, but it doesn't work out. It does not work out. Even the horses under Mussolini's dudes don't deserve this nonsense. But yes, if you ask around, people will say that uh, if you ask around outside Poland, people will say that this is the last cavalry charge. And the definition of cavalry charge made in the article that Andrew Miller sent as the as the jumping off point is one that I think is meant to avoid the kind of nitpicking that will happen through the rest of this segment. But it is a charge <laughs> it is command hut. It's really the nitpicking hut. Yep. They're all the nitpicking hut, Robin. That's the secret. <laughs> a charge made by multiple squadrons of horse, because, of course, we have cavalry units now. They have helicopters and tanks in them because they're armored cavalry or air cavalry. But when people say last cavalry charge, they're not thinking of, you know, American Apache helicopters flying into the flank of something. They're thinking about horses. Uh, a charge made by multiple squadrons of horse in close order using shock and close combat against an actively resisting enemy. And as we go through the other claimants for the title of last cavalry charge, we will note the sort of tergiversations and butts that the uh, author attempted to, to get around. But on October 24th, 1942, the Soviets had begun a counterattack on the flanks of the uh, German, the Axis Stalingrad offensive. So the Axis is driving for the Caucasus Mountains to get the precious, beautiful oil down there. They've reached Stalingrad, cut the Volga River, but 
what that means is the Axis Army Group South is spread all across southern Russia and Ukraine. And in this particular case, the Soviets thought that the section held by the Italians would fold up if struck by a counterattack. And so uh, the Soviets crossed the Don River and go charging up. And sure enough, just as you suspected, the Italians did in fact fold up and start running away. And there was nothing between the onrushing Soviets and the heart of the Axis supply lines, but a couple of hills. And some of them were near Izbushensky. And it was at this point that the cavalry was ordered to seize the hill and stop the Soviet charge. And if you think that's a lot of work to be given a 600 horse cavalry unit, you're probably not wrong, but nothing loath. They squared up, they rode out, they got to the hill at dark. They decided not to try and climb an unfamiliar hill on horseback in the dark. So they waited by the morning. The Soviets had arrived and entrenched on the hill. They, they heard the entrenching. They figured out what was going on. They sent scouts around. The scouts then triggered the entire Soviet position. So they did their job in that all the Soviets fired. And so the Italian commander knew exactly where the Soviets were. And so he detaches one squadron to climb up the flank, go along the waste ground at the uh, far west edge of the hill. And then they get up to the top of the hill and then they charge down the trench line, basically attacking the guys in the trenches, which worked pretty well. But at some point, 600 guys are not going to charge 2,500 people without running into some problems. So about half of that squadron's horse had been killed out from under them and things were looking black. So they had a dismounted cavalry charge, a dragoon charge up the face of the hill to draw the Russian fire. This allowed the cavalry on the top of the hill to uh, reorganize and charge back through the Soviet positions, at which point the third squadron held in reserve came slamming up the hill and sent the Russians fleeing back, not sadly for the Italians across the Don, but away from the hills that were needed to guard that position. And in fact, that remained the frontline position until the following January, I think, or November, when the main Soviet counterattack, Operation Uranus, begins to basically carve up the Stalingrad salient, the, the mega salient. And so at the cost of 32 Savoya cavalrymen dead and 52 wounded and 150 horses, they'd taken the hill. 150 Soviet dead, 300 wounded, 600 captured, plus they captured all the Soviets' machine guns and artillery, which they'd put into those trenches. And so that was a pretty good bag for a cavalry charge in 1942. And I think this is why people point this charge up as the sort of the last pure in the sense of, you know, cavalry tactics that had been honed since the medieval era, or actually since Alexander the Great. This is the last pure example of that. And right. when you look at it on the on the map, it is a absolutely textbook cavalry winkling and an entrenched infantry unit out of position. It's exactly how you do it. Right. And this is not a situation where they are suddenly discovering in this engagement that sending horse up against a rifle regiment is a bad idea. No. <laughs> this has been known for a hundred years that cavalry tactics no longer work against massed fire, but mm -hmm. it takes a long time for horses not to be being taken into fights. And even the commander here was not this is a great idea. Let's charge them the cavalry that this was a desperation move yeah. that wound up working, working at, at great cost. <laughs> mm -hmm. And if you were to film this scene, it would be quite horrific because 
horses keep moving after they've been shot. And it's, you know, this led to, you know, incredible animal slaughter. And, and uh, you would have to, you know, find a, a director willing to, you know, grapple with the uh, incredible horror of that. It actually was made into a movie called Carica Eroica, and it was a propaganda piece. <laughs> so I think they sort of avoided an awful lot of it, but the horses, I'm sure, died as martyrs to Italy, not in a horrendous way. Right. And, and this was a big propaganda sensation in Italy and was taken to be a, it's clearly an actually a Pyrrhic victory, but propagandists know how to, you know, turn a Pyrrhic victory into posters and songs mm-hmm. and stuff. Yep. So you have other candidates, though, for other possible later things that might actually count as the last cavalry charge. And the second one is also in World War II. Yeah. Since we're talking about World War II cavalry chargers, there will be someone who says, what about the famous time when the Polish Lancer unit charged the tanks and got obliterated? And that, as it is important to point out, was a propaganda, speaking of propaganda, that was a propaganda lie spread by the Russians and the Nazis, who, of course, at that time were allies, this being in 1939. (laughs) And uh, what happened was the cavalry had charged some armored car units and dispersed them and sent them running away. And when they ran away, they not unreasonably said, there's a bunch of cavalry guys here, bring in the tanks. And then the cavalry did, in fact, retreat from the tanks. Uh, It was at no point did anyone order a cavalry charge against tanks. And you'll hear about this, but it is it is not true. There was ample dumb cavalry charges, most of them in World War One, speaking of cavalry charges. And uh, you will see, uh, I guess I will mention very briefly that you will hear Australians say the last cavalry charge was the charge of the Australian cavalry at Beersheba in 1918 against the Turkish positions. Well, 1942 is after 1918, and that's all I'll say about that. Well, the numbers are upside down. down Right, yeah. So, in March of 1945, uh, speaking of Polish cavalry, there are two squadrons of the 1st Polish Cavalry Brigade as part of a combined arms unit. So, there was a large number of infantry and even some armor in the unit. It was not a pure cavalry unit. And the Germans were defending a village, Schoenfeld, in what was then Germany and will soon be Poland, not least as a result of this charge. And there was a hill in front of the village where there was an artillery position entrenched. Two squadrons of the Polish Cavalry Brigade charged that artillery position because they came in out of the smoke of the burning tanks after the artillery had knocked out the armor. And so they basically snuck up on the hill. If you could imagine sneaking up at a full gallop on a war horse, they did it. And then they knocked them off the hill. The village was no longer protected. And so the surviving infantry and armor were able to sweep around the hill and take the village. So at the end of that, you had only seven cavalrymen lost, no number of horses given, and 500 Germans killed, but also there was 140 other arms, uh, Poles killed, taking the village. So it was not a pure cavalry engagement. It was a cavalry part of a combined arms engagement, which again, I think people can argue with some justification is true of most cavalry charges. <laughs> right. Because the point of a cavalry charge is to demoralize the opposing troops because having horses running toward you is inherently terrifying in a way that, you know, even vehicles, which are much tougher than horses and can do more damage. There's something atavistic about the chaos Mm. that you are envisioning when a horse is barreling toward you. And so that causes ranks to break, which has been part of cavalry 
forever. Right, yeah, and was the point of cavalry from almost the, the first time there was cavalry. And that is, the Poles will say, was the last cavalry charge, or more patriotic Poles will say the last cavalry battle. It happened in 1920 uh, when the Poles charged the Russian cavalry and they were at odds of one to six and sent the Russian cavalry fleeing. And they're all very, very proud of themselves about that battle. So if you're looking for the last big cavalry versus cavalry battle, maybe it's that battle in 1920. But I believe that we have Patreon backers from the United States Army. I know, in fact, we do. And if any of them are from the 10th Mountain, they are right now getting ready to write in. (laughs) Their fingers are poised above their phones or keyboards. Right. Because the 10th Mountain Cavalry Scout Troop, which was an attempt to build a cavalry unit that would be attached to a light infantry division, uh, in this case, the mountain, 10th Mountain, was involved in the final stages of the battle for Italy in 1945. And during the clearing of the Po Valley, there are a number of different reports of a single squadron of the U.S. 10th Mountain clearing a town. And in some cases, they charge down the hedgerows and take out the guys defending the town. In some cases, they just ride down the main street, like in the Old West, and, you know, pistol shoot everyone out of the balconies. In some cases, they, you know, take out a machine gun nest uh, with a cavalry charge. One assumes from the flank, not from the direction the machine gun was pointing. But none of these specific narratives have made it into the record with, say, the name of the town or the strength of the opposition. And so, although everyone in the 10th Mountain will tell you with a straight face, the last cavalry charge was April 14th, 1945 in the Po Valley in Italy, they will not be able to tell you where. And so, my non-10th Mountain being position is, the cavalry scout troop probably cleared a lot of Italian positions, but I don't know that it did it in multiple squadrons of horse in close order using shock and close combat against an active or resisting enemy. I they feel would have like, written it down if they had. Exactly. Well, they, they, they wrote down some of it, but not the details that one would need to be entirely confident in the narrative. But I have no problem believing that the cavalry scout troop, which was there, did advance through the Po Valley and did take losses, that they were not involved in this sort of individual town clearing. And April 14th, 1945 is as good a date as any to assign for one of those town clearings. Right. Now, in, in the intervening decade, this has become much rarer, fortunately, to find horses on the battlefield. But uh, that's not necessarily true for the entire world. And you've got a late-breaking possible candidate. Yes. For a long, old time, people would say, well... It was probably 1942, maybe 1945, depending on how you look at it. But that's over and done with. Dusts off hands. There were cases of mounted units fielded by the Rhodesian government against infiltrators and rebels. Uh, This is, of course, when the Rhodesians were trying to keep their country uh, run by the, the white farmers. That worked out about as well as you imagine. But they had cavalry scouts who did occasionally charge groups of freedom fighters. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't, but at no point did any of it even get to the level of this Po Valley clearing. It was generally just sort of individual horses charging a group of guys level of of fighting. But in 2001, as a result of the war on terror beginning, we invaded a country where people went around on horseback still. And at the Battle of Chop Chaw, 
in October 23rd, 2001, the Northern Alliance had a... Uh, the country is Afghanistan. The country is Afghanistan. For people... Uh, yeah, I guess by now we have to give that, that that data. The country was Afghanistan. The Northern Alliance, which were our allies in Afghanistan against the Taliban, had an army that was about half cavalry, half infantry. Numbers vary. So it's between 300 and 750 cavalry and the same amount of infantry. The cavalry divided into three squadrons again. And with them were 28 mounted U.S. special forces and CIA paramilitaries. And this is where I think that there was a movie made. There was a pictures on Time magazine. Lots of images of U.S. special forces guys charging on horseback against the Taliban. This was where it's from. The Battle of Chapchal was the third in a series of battles attempting to take the strategic town of Mazar Sharif. The CIA had confidently predicted, by the way, that we would not take Mazar Sharif until January of 2002. Once more, the CIA covering itself with glory. But at Bishkab and Kobaki, a similar event happened. But there's questions about how deeply entrenched the Taliban were and how hard they fought at those two battles. But this one is a straight up cavalry charge, according to the definition. Taliban have got a thousand men anchored by three dug in tanks on the ridgeline. The cavalry charges across the open space. At some point, enough of the horses have been knocked down or the chargers wounded that they sort of pause a bit. They send the infantry up to engage the unit and then the cavalry charges again and clears the top of the ridge. And everyone would say, well, that's a straight up combined arms use that uh, Dostum, the commander of the Northern Alliance, regular Tamerlane using his infantry and his cavalry cleverly. Well, Tamerlane did not have something that Dostum did have, which was a series of B-52 strikes that went across the ridgeline and did maybe a bit of the ancestral cavalry job of demoralizing the men in the that trenches. Might have reduced the mass fire. <laughs> yes, it reduced the mass fire and I assume knocked out some of those tanks. And that was that was the contribution, by the way, of the 28 Americans was to call in those airstrikes. Right. Well, I think we know that B-52s are just very large horses. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, fundamentally. Very large and very old horses by now, but still, they get the job done. And so the uh, the B-52s, I guess, are the artillery in the classic, you know, triad, right? That, you know, Napoleon would have said, yes, that's an artillery barrage. That is what you do before a cavalry charge. You break up what at that time would have been a square or maybe a trench position. You, know, you bombard it with artillery as much as you can, knock out the enemy artillery, and then you go take the hill. And so if you define the B-52 not as terrifying thunder from heaven, but as just regular old artillery, just artillery that is higher and better targeted, I think that you basically are looking at something Napoleon would have recognized and said, yep, that was a cavalry charge at Chapchal. Why would you question it? Right. And I think once you sort of open that door, cavalry is being used in the Sudan right now during the coup d'etat attempt. There's cavalry all over the Sahel in Africa. There's ongoing wars between, you know, jeeps with machine guns and cavalry units, camel cavalry in some cases. Right. Where there are vehicles, people yeah. will use those vehicles in, in a war that breaks out, whether mm -hmm. those are pickup trucks or, or horses. Right. So Chapchal, I think, is the last major cavalry engagement of the war in Afghanistan. But as long as people have got horses around, there's going to be horse cavalry 
if they can get away with it. Because as you say, a bunch of Jeeps with machine guns is not the same as a line of thundering war horses bearing down on you with ill intent. Well, if Napoleon would have called that a cavalry charge, who are we to argue with Napoleon? And on that conclusive note, it's time for us to uh, follow the smell of popcorn to another familiar hut. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure we can always afford to do our homework by joining such Patreon backers as Scott Jones, Darren Dumay, Robert Dean, Chris Lydon, and Patrick Joint. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, the cigarette smoke still rising up past the beam of light from the projector booth. Welcome us once more into the Cinema Hut. And this, in the Cinema Hut, Robin, this is, I think, the longest line we've had to wait in to get to our center seats, center aisle of the science fiction cinema essentials. Because now, after promising it for low so many segments, we have reached 1977, the summer of 1977, and a little film that I like to call Star Wars, directed by George Lucas. I understand other people call it other things, among them George Lucas. We can leave that for another hut. Oh, I'll, I'll say it in this hut. It's called Star Wars. Yeah, right. I saw it in 1977. Clearly said Star Wars. It said Star Wars right there. Yeah. So this is the film that changed not only science fiction, but cinema in general. It didn't usher in the era of the blockbuster. That would have been Jaws that did that. But it's certainly the one that I think has had much more influence on the various different blockbuster eras that have followed it and on, uh, even though there were a whole bunch of sequels to Jaws, on the concept of franchising out a, a film. And all of that and the mood shift between the malaise and dystopias that preceded it versus the callback to Buck Rogers and the serial, along with influences as disparate as John Ford's The Searchers and Kira Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress, all bring what was previously a, a sort of side element of science fiction, the adventure, and brings it into the forefront of science fiction cinema and brings space opera full front and center. I'm not giving a plot summary of this because I don't know how you're listening to this podcast if you haven't <laughs> seen or at least heard of Star Wars. Right. And so we'll just 
move to the analysis. And if you haven't seen it, by the way, it still holds up. It's a banger. It is actually a masterpiece. It's a brilliantly constructed film. It's got an interesting five-act structure, of which the first act, R2-D2, is the protagonist of, Mm -hmm. of the film. And... The ethos shift, uh, Lucas is of the new wave, but this sort of raw, raw, victorious thing where, where the heroes win and the hero is not a soldier of a corrupt order coming back to overturn it, but rather is a, for the purposes of this film, at least, yes. is a fresh-faced young kid hoping for adventure. Later, we will find out what archetype Luke Skywalker really is, but it's a advance in the technology of the science fiction film. It is strangely considering how much Lucas's skills as a filmmaker sort of go sideways later. It's tight, it's got momentum, and it changes what people expect when they go to see a science fiction film. Yeah, the list of things that Star Wars did right is, I think, endless. It basically revolutionized special effects in science fiction. There's you know, silent running and then Star Wars and everything after Star Wars. Uh, even 2001 is not on the same level as what Star Wars presented in terms of a science fictional universe being brought out and mostly shooting lasers at each other that Star Wars was. Uh, it has magnificent sound design, the best sound design since Forbidden Planet, because Ben Burt basically said, I want to do Forbidden Planet, but for Star Wars, that's where that comes from. It has the engaging robot characters. Again, something that you anticipate, you, you sort of think is universal in science fiction now, but again, Maria in Metropolis is many things, but engaging is not one of them. Robbie in Forbidden Planet, Huey Dewey and Louie in Silent Running, and now R2-D2 and C-3PO open up the floodgates. It genuinely makes a global movie star out of Harrison Ford, perhaps to the surprise of everyone, including Harrison Ford, but there we were. It's got, of course, John Williams, I think, if not the first of his masterpiece movie scores, certainly the first globally recognized masterpiece of his movie scores. And he, of course, moves on to basically almost single-handedly move movie scores back into the Eric Maria Korngold era of the 30s and 40s, right? That the the, the big brass, big instrumentation level of, of movie score returns really with this film in an era that had not had that before, even in, you know, other adventure genres. And then, I guess, finally, it's also, of course, an, an attempt to sort of create uh, and we talk about, you know, the malaise of the 70s. This has sort of the flip side, the populist, optimistic, new age goofiness of the 1970s is also a big part of this movie. That what they are trying to fight, and you say he's not a, sub- a soldier of a corrupt order, et cetera, et cetera. But the corrupt order is definitely present in the film. Oh, yeah. And the corrupt order is meant to represent the sort of mechanized overproduced computerized dystopia that about half of our previous essentials have been fighting against. So we don't have a single, you know, a Logan rebelling against the order. We have a whole rebel alliance of scruffy goofs of seventies car kids, mostly fighting back against the man. And that is another gigantic seventies element. And it is finding the joy in that moment that I think is uh, as big a a reason that this movie took off as any of the other technical gifts, because it gave even the counterculture permission to be happy that the good guys won. And it's nice to feel happy. It's better to feel happy than to feel miserable and depressed, I would say. And it's certainly more lucrative. And some of the new wave elements were, first of all, 
Uh, at one point, Lucas wanted to shoot it in a cinema verite style, which uh, would have been uh, quite trippy. But one new wave element that you see is that it showed places where people lived and sets and so forth as as lived in, as you know, mm-hmm. you would see the people's houses were messy and so forth. And we're going to see this again in uh, the next film we're going to talk about. And the equivalent of that in Star Wars is that the equipment is dirty and damaged and dinged up, rusting out and dinged up that it seems to have actually been used. And there's a bit of that in silent running, but it's a big deal in Star Wars. The film critic, Robin Wood famously referred to Star Wars as the beginning of Reaganite entertainment that he <laughs> uh, recoiled from the way that he saw this as, you know, the death of the personal filmmaking of the American new wave, uh, which arguably was probably heaven's gate that finished that off. Yeah. I don't think we can blame the one that made money for killing the new wave, but it's ironic <laughs> given what we've discovered looking at these movies film by film is that the previous dystopian films although many of them made by liberals have a strong conservative slant in their anti-hedonist stance. And Star Wars, very strangely, according to the film editor and sound editor, Walter Murch, began as the same project as Apocalypse Now. (laughs) And ultimately, Lucas stopped working on Apocalypse Now with Coppola and, and Milius and went off and did this. And so this means that in that framework, the Rebel Alliance are the Viet Cong, the heroic yeah. Viet Cong. And so this is actually a much more subversive film than the New Wave films that preceded it. And, and uh, Lucas makes that parallel even stronger with Return of the Jedi, the third movie in the trilogy. And I think at this point, he's just trying to beat your heads and say, these are the Viet Cong, pay attention. But yeah. of course, by 1986, we didn't care. Right. <laughs> so with that interesting twist in mind, and we'll we'll put a pin in the Ewoks uh, yeah, in several as ways, it were. <laughs> uh, because now we come to the other film that year that is another masterpiece by Lucas's friend and collaborator, and another case of someone who is an outward populist. Who both of their cases, and especially when they work together, there's a real underlying darkness to that rah-rah populism. Of course, I'm talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Steven Spielberg, which is a film in which uh, ordinary schlub with a messy house that is shot very much like an American New Wave film, Richard Dreyfuss becomes obsessed with UFO culture and begins to uh, start to uh, see things. And there's encounters with uh, beautifully designed spaceships and that leads him to abandon his family to go to devil's tower to find out what that thing he was making out of his mountain of mashed potatoes really means and what the significance of that all is and there is a outward optimism and a a layer of darkness underneath that film yeah close encounters i think is a movie that is an attempt to humanize the revelation in 2001 that Lucas, rather than saying the aliens are God, are, are presenting this entirely mysterious text to us in the form of monoliths. This is about communication with not a impersonal, you know, Old Testament God, but a New Testament savior. And there, there are signs and wonders. It's a religious quest story. He does it through the lens of the UFO cult, which in the 1970s was very much a religion for the people that followed it. And, uh, of course, it concludes with the triumphant establishment of communication between 
Earth and the aliens in the form of music. And if that is not Spielberg all over, that there is the transcendent, but we understand it and approach it through art, then I don't know what is. Richard Dreyfus, of course, is amazing in it, just as he was in Jaws, the movie that created the financial format of the blockbuster. Our buddy Jacques Vallée is basically portrayed by the Francois Truffaut character in the movie. So there's a, if there wasn't a Cartas tie-in already in a movie about UFO worship and coded communications, now there's absolutely one. And it is a, again, I would say another optimistic film in that it, uh, Roy Neary, the Richard Dreyfus character, does get to the the point, he reaches the promised land, he gets his communication from God, from Jesus, space Jesus, and there is a unity between the government and science and the, the everyman in the face of the aliens that I think a later film might not have done and an earlier film absolutely wouldn't have done. And it could only have been done in this, you know, sort of cusp historical moment and only by Steven Spielberg of all the directors uh, in America and the world, I think. Right. But it is a film about how being an apostle has its price. <laughs> Bad effects. <laughs> yeah. Let's briefly mention, we talked about it before in context of the original, the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers directed by Philip Kaufman. I like it a little better than you do, but because it is a remake, I'm not going to put it on the uh, essentials list, but it is sort of a trailing indicator of how the critique of 70s hedonism, you know, it's still popping along. And here, basically, the body snatcher uh, plotline, which tracks very closely to the original one of vegetable creatures from outer space coming and creating pod duplicates of people. Now the threat is therapy culture and the self-absorption of the uh, 70s. And so it's still about paranoia, but the paranoia that it selects is very much of it's time and sort of an indication that the, you know, things don't immediately turn on a dime. This is the, the just a year after Star Wars, so it's not really influenced by it in the same way. Right. And we have another dystopic film right after it in 1979, George Miller's Mad Max, the first of that storied franchise. And I guess not a franchise, just a series of films by the same director. But Mad Max is almost at the bubble between a crime film and a science fictional post-apocalypse dystopia, which definitely the rest of the series opens up into. Right. But in Yeah, I, I would actually not. I think it's on the other side of the line because yeah. it's not even a post-collapse movie, right? That it's just showing you the beginning of a social collapse, but people still have homes and they watch the TV news. And it's just that there are these punks out on the highway who have taken over. And so I, I don't think it quite crosses the line into actually having a a science fiction premise that it's an action exploitation movie whose sequels then become post-apocalyptic science fiction. So I wouldn't actually put it on this list. Well, I would because, you know, the, the how did we get here is a big part of science fiction. And this is definitely a, if this goes on movie in the tradition of science fiction, it's just a even nearer future than the standard near future science fiction is. And in the same way that Andromeda strain is a science fiction film about an alien virus that infects a perfectly normal earth. Mad Max is about the virus of, a collapse that is beginning to infect perfectly normal earth. And certainly as you see the rest of the films, you can't say George Miller didn't have that in mind when he's making it because the next movie is straight up. And now the collapse has happened. And now what I, I get your argument that it's almost a prequel to a science fiction series as opposed to a science fiction film, but I think it can definitely be read science fictionally. And it's such a great movie that I'm putting it in here anyway. And I dare anyone to come at me 
I'll give you a hacksaw is what I will do. Well, we didn't get hugely through the list this time because we had some items that we really had to talk about. So we're going to uh, still be in 1979 when we pick up <laughs> next time and uh, might not even get it into the 80s because there's a whole uh, another string either of bangers or of things that, that need to be talked about. So uh, let's, uh, let's reconvene on a very creepy spaceship next week. But this podcast isn't over because we've got another segment on the other side of this here commercial. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X. In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wander into that most ill-defined of huts, the one where we're not really sure what's going on, except sort of the paranormal is meeting crankery, sort of alternate history. But we can see out the window, and there's an alien big cat screaming out on the moor. And over in the corner, I think somewhat indifferent this time around, because this is about a, a technology they consider primitive, are the uh, Nordic alien and the gray alien. But they're still enjoying their kombucha, and they're going to politely listen to our discussion of psychic photographer Ted Sirios. And I recently went to a photography exhibition at the... Uh, now called Toronto Metropolitan University, and went to see something else. And there, off in a corner, was an exhibit of the supposedly psychically generated photographs of this fellow who, in the 50s and 60s, supposedly generated images on Polaroids merely using his thoughts. And it was a strange thing to see an exhibit of the actual photographs, which I'll describe a bit when we get to that. But Ken, uh, you have more background in your dossier on Ted Sirius. I do. Born in 1918 in Kansas City, apparently a rambunctious kid kept in line by his dad. His dad dies when he's 20. At that point, he drifts to Chicago, <laughs> as I guess all rootless drifters do. Winds up as a bellhop and elevator operator in a hotel. He's by now moving rapidly into his alcoholic phase. And is uh, showing signs of what his later collaborator and mentor would describe as a sociopathic personality. And believe me, when your collaborator and mentor describes you that way, that's a sign. So he falls in with a fellow hotel employee named George Johannes in 1954 because they're, I think, both sort of into vibes and weird stuff. 
and Johannes is an amateur hypnotist and he's hypnotizing Ted Sirius and he turns out Sirius is a great hypnotic subject. He, you know, goes under and starts giving cool stuff and they figure they'll use their gifts to psychically locate treasure with traveling clairvoyance. And the way that they do that is they send Sirius down into hypnosis. And at that point, he's possessed by the spirit of Jean Lafitte, beloved Caribbean pirate Jean Lafitte. And Jean Lafitte then tells them where the treasure is. And when they look, there isn't any treasure there. Right. And this is not a part of the story that you tend to hear from supporters of Ted Sirius actually having powers. It is not. <laughs> as so little of the story do you hear from supporters of Ted Sirius, but here we are. So Lafitte goes away. One imagines Sirius is tired of doing the accent. And, and everything we have here, by the way, is what Sirius told someone in Fate magazine. It's not, you know, there's not depositions to this effect. Uh, Johannes said, let's try it with a camera. They put Sirius's head up to a camera, a regular old camera. And when they develop the film, there's weird images on it. And so at some point they begin using a Polaroid and the system that Sirius develops is talked of enough in occult circles in Chicago that it gets written up in fate magazine in 1962 and uh fate magazine publisher, Curtis Fuller answers a letter from the Denver psychiatrist and parapsychologist, Jewel Eisenbud, who is at the university of Colorado medical school, as well as having a thriving private psychiatry practice. And he says, if you're looking for psychics to test, we have one in Chicago. And so when, Eisenbud was in Chicago the next time. He meets Sirius in a hotel room, pays for the drinks, and Sirius produces photography for him. And he says, this is worth studying. He brings him to Denver in 1964, basically buys him an apartment, puts him up, pays him a stipend uh, from a trust that's established, and tests him at the Colorado Psychiatric Hospital and other industrial testing sites in Denver, and demonstrates his photography, not only in uh, supposedly controlled academic tests, but also to home gatherings, primarily of doctors. And during the three years or so that they're doing this, Sirius repeatedly goes missing, wanders away, goes back to Chicago. He gets beaten up in bars. He gets arrested. He gets thrown out of pool halls. He gets blackout drunk. It's a full-time job keeping Ted Sirius on beam. Right. And, and that's where we need to say that when Eisenbud says he's sociopathic, yeah. that, that is an older definition of that term. And that has come to mean something now closer to psychopath. Mm -hmm. But at that time, he was essentially meaning that he's just a troubled dude who has real trouble getting along in society and is antisocial. Right. So the, uh, the, the process of the photography is that Sirius rolls up a giz, what he calls a gizmo, a little tube of black paper, and he holds it between his head and the lens of a Polaroid. He works himself up into a state, screaming obscenity, races his pulse, his veins yeah, stand out. Drinks a bunch of beer. It's better. Drinks a lot of a beer and a lot of whiskey. And then the whole, and then he will yell at the, at the opportune moment to the holder of the camera, shoot. And the guy pushes down the, 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 the trigger or the shutter, I guess, technically. And the Polaroid takes a picture. Sometimes there's nothing. Sometimes you get a entirely black image, which is optically weird. Sometimes you get an entirely white image, which is even optically weirder. These are called. Right. So Eisenbud thought that those two were just 
were proof of paranormal activity. That that's right. not something that would normally happen. Right. And those are called blackies and whiteies. And some are total blurs. And sometimes you get recognizable if distorted images of the sort you might think of remote viewing producing. Uh, they produced in the three years of testing, they produced 2,100 images and about 400 of them are pictures of something. Right. And a lot of them look sort of like the blurry image that you would get if you're accidentally taking a shot or while you're putting your camera away as, as right. happens uh, now, but not with a Polaroid camera. Mm-hmm. And they are quite blurry and, and indistinct, but there are recognizable uh, things on them. And one of the most interesting ones is there's two shots of the same storefront, which was a particular gold retail store that Sirius knew from Chicago, but the signage looks slightly different on the two of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, at one point, they, he took a picture of what Eisenbud recognized as his ranch that he owned, but it was the ranch as it appeared 20 years ago and not as it appeared now. And how, how would that happen? Questions Eisenbud. Pictures of the Parthenon, pictures of cars, sometimes it's pictures from closed books that are on the site. In the 1965, they went to the Field Museum in Chicago to do tests, and they thought maybe you can do psychic pictures of the past. And so they had all manner of skulls and pots and things for him to psychically concentrate on. And what they got was a bunch of pictures of the Neanderthal that was part of the diorama of Neanderthals downstairs. And so that's good fun. So uh, Eisenbud theorized that some of the blurs were the surface of Ganymede, but he couldn't get any astronomer to take even the question seriously. In 1967, Eisenbub publishes a book called The World of Ted Sirios, Thoughtographic Studies of an Extraordinary Mind. And in that book, he claims Sirios psychokinetically manipulates light to create the images that he receives clairvoyantly. And he further theorizes that everything is mind, that there is no matter, and so therefore manipulating what we think of as matter is really just psychic energy. And right. a psychic shouldn't have any problem manipulating a world that is purely a sensation and has no reality to it. An argument that David Hume uh, shut away in 1750, so it's always good to see it coming back into print. Right. And all this time, Sirius is warning him that he thinks that there's a timer clock on his power, that he's not going to have it forever, and that one day it's going to be curtains. And then he produces a picture of of some curtains. Right. Yep. And that was on uh, June 15th, 1967, and apparently... That's when his powers stopped working. And by coincidence, also in 1967, a couple of amateur magicians and photographers publish an expose in popular photography of how Ted Sirios did it. There's also the hospital where Eisenbutt had privileges, asked a guy named Niall Root to look into it. And this is during the testing period in 1966. They all basically come up with the same theory that uh, Sirius's drunk and antisocial behavior, including stripping down, acts as a misdirection. People don't want to look at a drunk screaming person who's uh, shirtless, not in not now and not in 1966. During that misdirection, he would sneak an optical device into the gizmo. An optical device generally has a piece cut out of a slide or a piece of an image and a tiny lens or a marble to provide uh, something for the the Polaroid to get the light through. And uh, with that image, and there used to be little things on your keychain that you could buy, and there'd be like a little tiny, uh, like a kaleidoscope, like a little telescope thing, and you'd peek through one end of it, and in the other, there'd be a picture of Marilyn Monroe or whoever you wanted to see a little picture of. And so you could get one of those, take Marilyn Monroe out, and put in the Parthenon or a Neanderthal or whatever else you might want to have a psychic picture of. 
And then while the Polaroid film is developing, which takes, of course, a minute, that and everyone's looking at the Polaroid to see what happens, that gives Sirius an opportunity to palm the crystal again so that when you look at the gizmo after the shot, there's nothing in it. And James Randi reproduced it. Other magicians have reproduced it. Other photographers have reproduced it. Uh, Niall Root reproduced it. It's not hard to do. And it's apparently not hard to gull people in 1966 or now with basic stage magic. Right. And and even now, the exhibit that I went to, it did not say that this was definitely a, a psychic power, but it left out. The, there is no placard showing the debunking process that was conveniently left out of the exhibit. Well, if it's the exhibit from the University of Maryland, which is where Eisenbud's papers are, if you go to the University of Maryland webpage and you look at their Eisenbud collection, they are believers. They're like, no one has ever shown how Sirius could have done it. It's a mystery. We'll never know. And in fact, the University of Maryland, a professor named Makita Brotman, who is a popular scholar, wrote a glowing review of the Ted Sirius exhibit that James Randi had to, you know, come out of retirement to yell at in the pages of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, Sirius died in 2006 in Quincy, Illinois. Jewel Eisenbud died in 1999. And that's when his papers all moved to a University of Maryland and the University of Maryland built this sort of archive of the of the Sirius product. Right. And after his powers stopped working, he did profess, after he moved away and was not in close contact with Eisenbud, to still be trying to recover his power. And yeah. at one point, he did send him one color Polaroid. So the rest of them are all black and white. And then there's one color Polaroid that he uh, allegedly produced with his uh, psychic powers. And there's a essay on the perhaps mistitled skeptic.com website by two guys that pilgrimaged to one assumes Quincy or wherever Sirius was in 1997. Uh, they keep it a secret in the thing for pointless mystification reasons. And once more, he sort of says, why not old time's sake? They're buying the scotch. So he does it again and produces a what they refer to as dozens of photographs, but none of them are in the article, you know, depicted. And I assume that they carried them away with themselves and said, oh, look, we have the last Ted Sirio's photograph. So, you know, perhaps the power came back after 30 years or perhaps he realized that the best you can get out of this uh, grift is an apartment in Denver. And who wants that? So there we are. So his heyday uh, is the 1960s. So that means mm -hmm. fall of Delta Green. We're running long on this episode so do we have to say anything other than cthulhu entity shows up on the thoughtograph of some fictionalized or perhaps even just use ted Sirius as your thoughtographer right i mean certainly the, the the shan would make a lovely thing to show up in your thoughtograph because they're already in people's heads any telepathic creature from deep ones on down makes a lovely thing Sirius himself used to talk about how he wanted to be spying for the air force and look for Russian missile silos. So that's, you know, the old project grill flame of Aunt Letra. But you could certainly imagine a Delta Green unit that is uh, looking into Ted Sirios and realizes that he is the kind of channel you can't use because it's a channel to the Shan or to the Deep One telepathic. Although in Denver, I guess there's not that many Deep Ones. <laughs> there, <laughs> but, there's a uh, little known offshoot, the High Ones. Right. They're the High Ones. They're the mountain breed. The squeaky, yeah. the squeaky mountain frogs. Uh, or Migo, actually. You got the Rocky Mountains right there. I'm sure that the Migo have got something going on. You've got a, a fairly self-contained and fun story, and that might be why Sirios is suddenly shut down. And this is a remarkably kindly Delta Green unit that all they do is sever his psychic connection in some way, rather than shooting him in the back of the head and leaving him in an alley in Denver, which must have been 
not just plausible, but tempting by the end of the adventure. Right. Well, when you don't want someone's autographs to be looked into, you mm-hmm. just probably pay him off. And it might be that they discover that if they shoot him, then the shams physically burst out of his head and infect perfectly nice people in Denver. And so it's like, well, if we just, you know, shut down his psychic connection by spiking his scotch, we've uh, beat the sham and we don't have to deal with a lot of paperwork afterward. Right. And, you know, he could be an, an actual asset who is acting as a decoy to flush out the actual photographer who's the one who winds up face down in a ditch. Right. Well, I think uh, we've gone on, on quite the journey this episode, as we always do, and as we'll do again a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelagrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in psychic Polaroids alongside such heavily focused Patreon backers as... Andrea Coletta. Darren Hennessy. Derek McMullen. Will Ferguson and Fifi Payat. And John Burgess. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>